Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 333, the Triple Threes, is recorded live June 29th, 2017. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Chilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it has certainly been great. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here and on time. Yes, this is like a first. We haven't been on time, gosh, in years. Seems like we've always been fighting something and getting organized, but uh, this 9.30 start time for the chat room seems to be working out pretty well. Well, let's hope we continue this uh, yeah. trend. Yeah, yeah, I certainly appreciate everybody who's joining us. We have uh, a full chat room. There's always room for more, but it's nice to see four or five people come and get started. We have Eric's just popped on in. We had uh, Southwest Michigan who had uh, dialed in with an audio line, guest four, and Molinex. He says as long as he doesn't have a run, he'll be listening to us tonight. So thank you, everybody who's in the chat room. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters. We'll put the plug here at the beginning of the show. If you like the show and you think it's at least worth a dollar, why not drop us a little bit of coin? Go to Patreon, or actually not even go to Patreon. Go to our website, www.scubobsess.com. Click on the Patreon link from there, and that will get us to... Uh, our Patreon page where you can donate as much as you, you would like. A dollar, three dollars gets you early access to the show notes. Uh, and even more is appreciated. Those at the Dive Nitrox level get a shout out at the end of the show. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. I have the news preloaded. I, I, I think I have figured anytime you get too far ahead and you think you got things figured out, that's when you should be worried. But I think I have figured this thing out. So it's only taken me, what, almost eight years now? of doing this to get this dialed in. I'm, I'm feeling too confident. Practice, conf- practice, yeah. practice, practice. Yeah, I, I'm feeling too confident, so we're going to screw something up. But the first article is 12 boys from Manchester Grammar School have been taken to the hospital after falling ill during a scuba diving class. They were suspe- suspected of, uh, okay, here, here's the curse. It says, we've got newest Windows features updates for you. Okay. The boys were taken to the hospital uh, suspected of carbon monoxide poisoning, and now divers have also been put on alert and told any air tanks that have been filled or supplied by the business must be returned as a matter of urgency. Uh, police are investigating after the 12 boys uh, were taken to the hospital. After falling ill during a scuba diving class, one pupil aged 14 had to be given oxygen by a school nurse, which they think may have saved his life. He is currently in stable condition. It happened at MGS's on-site swimming pool. Police, along with health and safety executive SHE and Public Health England, are now investigating the company who supplied the air tanks, which is Aqualogics, A-Q-U-A-L-O-G-I-S-T-I-C-S. Aqualogistics, I guess that's what it is, uh, on Chester Road, Central Stockport. So if you have any tanks of air supplied by them, 
do not use the tanks. Take them back for testing to the shop. Message on the company's website said, Air Fill Recall, if you have any unused gas, Air Nitrox Tri-Mix, please do not use them. Return them to us for checking. And the the shop is currently closed, which could be a challenge if it's closed and you have the tanks. Do you, do you like that uh, discount tire commercial? Do you return them that way? I could throw a tire further than I could a steel tank or something, though. <laughs> Especially if it was doubles. And for those outside the U.S., there's the longest-running TV commercial in the United States is Discount Tire. And I think it's still being shown. Uh, and it's this little old lady who takes a tire and throws it through the front window. And they say, if you ever don't, if you ever unhappy with the tires, re- return them. No questions asked. Uh, and I think the, the commercials run for like 18 or so many years. Uh, emergency services were called and two boys were immediately taken to the hospital by ambulance. Several of the other boys later felt unwell and were also taken. As a precautionary member, the remaining boys who were on the course had, were also seen at the hospital determined whether they need any treatment. Our thoughts are with all the boys and their parents who will continue to offer support. One of their boys remains in the hospital where he's in stable condition. Eleven others have been discharged. And this was earlier in the week, so I haven't seen an update to this. Uh, police have confirmed that they're looking the possible possibility that carbon monoxide was <clears throat> present in the tanks. The statement said detectives are investigating the incident. The health and safety executives have been working with the Public Health England to ensure there's no wider risk to the public or diving community. The possibility that carbon monoxide was present in air tanks is being investigated. Uh, Superintendent Dave Pester Added, my thoughts are the boys who are taken ill during the diving lessons. We hope they remain in the hospital. The, the boy who remains in the hospital makes a full recovery. We are determined to find out how and why this incident happened. As a word of the incident spread through the diving community, Hazel Grove Subaquatic Club posted a warning on its website. It said, all members, air fill recall. If you have any unused airs, return it. Uh, and they go on pretty much just saying the same thing. Uh, the newspaper, which was Manchester England News, has tried to contact the dive shop, but no one for the company was available for comment. Well, I did go and take a look at their website. First thing you got was a warning from whether my uh, browser protector is and warning, warning, Will Robinson. But I went there anyway. Yeah. And basically they posted a notation which basically says the same thing, that they're shocked, saddened by the incident. Uh, thoughts are with the family and friends of those affected. And it says, on the advice of the health and safety executive, we would ask that any cylinders be returned, blah, blah, which is what they referenced. It also said it would be inappropriate for us to comment further at this stage, which is a smart way to do it. Oh, yeah. Let's find out what the problem is and let all the speculators start going, you know, foaming at the mouth and go from there. Right. Because in- now the interesting the interesting part is everybody's mm-hmm. going to say, well, does this apply to me over here? Should we be concerned? And if you ever went to scuba board in the old days, like and I say old days, 2012 for example, there was huge articles on a similar item: carbon monoxide and scuba tanks, the risk and protection. What do you do about that? And lots of debate about, you know, when should you test? Should you test? Should the supplier? of your air be doing the testing, how do you validate it? Nowadays, you hear the same thing. So back in 2012, everything you're going to hear again from this, you're, you heard then. And uh, the, the one thought is, of course, your life is important. You should buy your CO detector. Use it every time. 
just like you do with your nitrox. You wouldn't dive nitrox without, you know, testing your supply, knowing your percentage. You shouldn't do it without having checked your uh, CO. Truth in much of that, but if you look at the total percentage of all the millions of tanks that are filled, they said it's less than 3% has ever had a issue or an item that called the uh, dilution into question, you know, CO or not. If you go through the statistics for what is considered to be acceptable level, that's all well and good, by the way, if you're on the surface. But when you start going down to five atmospheres, you just compounded your partial pressures. Right. And uh, what's good on the surface could kill you down below. Yeah. And, and so the, if you're, I was, was going to say, say if you're in, if, go ahead. If you're in for the debate, read the old stuff from 2012, and then rotate over and start looking at the stuff on scuba board now. And it's basically the same verbiage. As a side note, I do not know anybody that I have dove with other than somebody doing tri or, or nitrox having tested their air independently for CO. I don't believe I know anybody who's done that either. Um, I want to say that diving air uh, sensors, CO2 ex- was rather expensive to have a detector for. I think it's slowly starting to come on down now, but I don't think well, any, anything that we would be using in diving uh, was readily available. Well, currently you can get a decent one from approximately 250 all the way up to whatever you want to pay. There's also the poor man's version that costs $15. <laughs> and I happen to use one in my airplane. Oh, okay. It's a CO tab. And basically what you do there is you put it in a balloon, you fill up the balloon from your tank, and you wait 20 minutes, you look at the color changes on it, and at least that gives you some indication if you have gross contamination. Okay. You know, but, you know, what degree, what percentage, you'd need an analyzer. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, do you trust the air supply source that you have, and do they test for it? When I was commercial, we used our own filters, we changed them out. And some of the substances in the filter took out CO. But again, civilian-wise, I've never, never had mine tested here if it's not done at the shop. So no. I'm curious about feedback from other people. Uh, has that ever been a concern? And have you ever had bad air? I, again, not I at this point. I haven't either. Um, maybe for our listeners. What would be a potential source of contamination for you to get carbon monoxide uh, filled into your tank? Where would that have come oh, from? Oh, they've got some huge stories. There's uh, One of these guys had his detector sitting on a shelf at home, had it turned on by accident, and it went off. And he has in an enclosed room, and it detected the exhaust uh, monoxide or CO coming from a car parked in his complex downstairs and off to the right with the door closed. Wow. <laughs> my concern would have been, of course, where's my intake if I'm using a gasoline-driven type device, mm-hmm. you know, a pump. The guys like Larry and them, when they run their compressors, engine-driven, we make sure the the exhaust is downstream and downwind of the intake. Mm-hmm. And they also have real good filters right? that they check because they don't want to die. Um, on an electric, you can still, though, depending on where your intake is, you can take in gases from automobiles, you know, forklift trucks, what have you. 
So if it's not really don't have a good filter, you could ingest it a lot of different ways, not just from the hydrocarbons of a leaky valve because you use you didn't use vegetable oil or something mm-hmm. like that. How about a barbecue? I don't know why you couldn't. That's <laughs> I, I don't I don't do him. The the other interesting part we're talking about 2012 is the last big hurrah for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best item at 2010 DEMA show in the category winners was called a CO Dash Pro. And that cost $7.95. I tried to look it up to see if it was still an active item, and I did not, at this point, find out if it was still valid. Mm-hmm. So I would personally be interested in anybody in the audience out there giving us some feedback on, is that a concern for them? Has it ever been a concern for them? And do they know, in fact, if their air supplier does, in fact, check out for uh, CL, which I'm sure they do? And again, the frequency. Do you really check and see the frequency of somebody maintaining their compressor you get air from? Most people don't. So something to be uh, the check on. If you want to give us that feedback, you can do that on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. Go to the website, www.scubaobsessed.com, and the contact us page. You can go ahead and place it in there. Or you can email us at the show at scuba obsessed. Dot com and that will also get to us. And uh, while we're at it, just go ahead and plug Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. We'll get well as uh, our Twitter account. And this next one, Mac, you you sent off to me. Uh, Asian carp found near Lake Michigan puts Great Lakes at risk. An article out of Chicago. Um, let's see what's this website? DNA Info. Uh, the Great Lakes ecosystem could be in danger after an Asian carp fish was found just nine miles from Lake Michigan. The silver carp is a non-native species of Great Lakes and are varcarious filter feeders eating huge volumes of food, including algae and plankton. This could lead to species quickly out-competing the native species of the lake and damaging the ecosystem. The live carp was pulled out of the Calumet River, according to the Tribune. To remove the carp is virtually impossible, and prevention is the only way to remove them, said Jennifer Caddick, Vice President of Communications of Engagement for Alliances for the Great Lakes. Silver and bighead carp are the most concerning species that have been able to establish themselves in the water and move up the waterways, Caddick said. Regional committees are in charge of monitoring the carp and waterways leading to Lake Michigan include the electrical barriers that keeps them out. Through routine monitoring efforts, the eight-pound adult silver carp was found and taken to Southern Illinois University for analysis. U.S. Senator Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth have both expressed their concern over the carp's discovery. They they urged the uh, Trump Organization to release an U.S. Army Corps engineer analysis on how to prevent the Asian carp from reaching the Great Lakes and have not received a response since April. If this invasive species reaches the Great Lakes, it could cause significant economic losses, irreversible damage to the ecosystem, and threatening the drinking water of the 20 million Americans. The Asian carp is native to China and surrounding areas, originally brought in for aquaculture in Louisiana. Initially, the purpose is to eat the algae that develops in ponds to control the algae problem. Many of the ponds were near the Mississippi River, and surprise, surprise, floods caused the carp to spill into the river and as they've been moving upstream. In the past eight years, as the second carp found near the electrical dispersal barriers, the last big carp was found in Lake Calumet in 2010. And I have to say, I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of this. Well, first of all, this is not DNA larvae. This is a freaking eight-pound fish, and I'm looking at a picture of them. That's a pretty healthy-looking fish. 
Yeah. And where there's one, there's more, especially if they're that size already. Yep. Number two is I went ahead and just went through that same topic, Asian carp found blah, blah, and checked all the local papers because it came from one source and, and read them all. Half of them immediately blamed Trump saying he's <laughs> the cause of this and it's going to, and it's like everybody from yesterday back, what, 12 years is at fault. Right. It's suddenly his fault because he didn't release something that started last year that's not completed. And not to say Trump one way or the other. It's just if you're going to blame somebody, blame the people who said it's not a problem 12 years ago and all those a-hole government representatives who were him hawing about it. Mm-hmm. And when it gets there, it's like, okay, now what am I going to do? It's too late. Well, what the heck? Well, we got something that will take care of it right away. Why don't you just barrier it? Just shut it off. Just put up a well, big, forget a lock, just start piling dirt in there and it's done. Yeah. The comments on a lot of this are really interesting because you got the pros like this is fault science. The carp will not do a bad thing to the lake at all. You've got scientific evidence from their perspective that supports that. And, they said, and besides, if you bring it in, one, you can catch them in vast numbers because they're going to be huge, which they will be until they kill everything else. But you can use them. You can catch them, make fertilizer out of them. You can make cat food out of them. You can't do that with a lot of species. Not to mention you can also eat them because they are considered delicacy. We could sell them back to China. But <laughs> what's that going to do to the supposed to be $7 billion industry we have in fishing and tourism because of the fish? Well, this Some people re- say that's a made-up number two. This just reminds me of any time – we try and mess with the environment and introduce something in. It always has unforeseen consequences. You know, we've, we've seen it with the uh, killer bees. Uh, we've seen it with gypsy moths. Uh, there's got to be a hundred different marine species, such as the Asian carp, that have been introduced. Uh, oh, the lamprey. We got the milfoil. I mean, you name zebra it. Zebra mussels. We got it. Quaggas. Yep. And we know about it. Stop the freaking ballast water. That would have stopped a lot of it or minimized the time frame for it. But we don't. We talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, but they don't do a darn thing that's effective. Yeah. It would be a little expensive to make people do that. But again, by the time it comes to be a real problem, they'll be dead. Nobody's going to blame them because they're dead. So, hey, business is business. But I, I did pick up on that same item, not to get political, but it seems that if you that you've got a position you want to insert, and anything that you think you that people can't call you out immediately on, you just insert it in there. I know I find that irritating because if if we really do try to stick to the facts and use the information that's available, uh-huh. and it, the migration has been up towards the lake. And we've seen evidence from other invasive species of what it did to the lake. It sort of sounds logical. So How's I don't know what they're going to do. No. How's this for an experience? You can watch the total solar eclipse underwater at a scuba center. On August 21st, there's going to be a solar eclipse that you can see from backyards, rooftops, space museums, and other local viewing events. But a small scuba diving shop in Hopkins, Kentucky, is another idea in mind. They want to watch the moon pass in front of the sun from underwater. Penny Royal Scuba Center has been making plans for the total solar eclipse for about 
four years, co-owner Chris Tapp told the station. So for us here, we've decided we're going to do something special, something that no one has ever heard of before. Hopkinsville, a small city about 75 miles north of Nashville, is right on the path of the totality. It's a 70-mile-wide swath of the country stretching from Oregon to South Carolina where the total eclipse will be visible. The eclipse will turn the quarry's blue waters from black, oh, the, the quarry's blue waters black for nearly three minutes as the moon blots out the sun midday. The scuba center will have a special face mask filters on hand to make viewing safe. Since looking at the eclipse without special eye protection cause blindness, they're also offering a solar eclipse diving certification course that they've designed themselves. <laughs> Yeah, because, I know. I, I know everybody needs that, sir. Let me tell you. Well, you never know when you're gonna, you know, just be randomly out there in scuba gear underwater. Uh, Tap said he's unsure exactly what the clips will look like underwater, but he plans to capture the moment with video cameras, still phot- photographs taken from beneath the surface. For those viewing elsewhere, NASA recommends using one of these eclipse glasses of Solar Viewer certified to meet industry safety standards. Uh, one is Rainbow Symphony, American Paper Optics, Thousands, Oaks Optical, TSA 17. This summer eclipse will be the first total eclipse to cross uh, continental United States from coast to coast since 1918. Those lucky enough to be in the eclipse during the uh, diagonal path will see the moon fully eclipse the sun. Other areas will see a partial eclipse. It's a little deceiving to say you're going to watch the eclipse underwater, though. Well, what I, I mean, and be careful following any advice we say, but next time we're in the water, just look up and see if you can spot the sun underwater. I am not picturing that there's going to be a whole lot of uh, um, visibility down below. Yeah, I, I think the filtration aspect of the water will give you the polarization, blah, blah, whatever you need to protect your eyeballs. Yeah. I The last time we had a solar eclipse, and I don't remember if it was a full one or not, and it seemed like this was in the 90s. Do you remember that one, Mac? No, not really. I do not. Yeah, we had that. And I was at work. And I was working at a print shop. And we had photographic film. And, and I'm not talking like little negatives. I'm talking big sheets of this that was exposed. And we just sandwiched two of them together. And we looked up. And at uh, the, the, the negatives uh, are, are silver lined. And uh, we viewed it that way. So I'm not saying that's I, the way to do it. But. But I've done the same thing, though. That's the way I remember doing it is with the, the heavy-duty industrial negative paper. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that's what this was. This was uh, uh, fully exposed, and, and and it worked quite well. I've also heard of people using welding masks, which I also, again, you know, we're, we're not saying that's the way to, to do it, but uh, I have heard of it being done that way. So interesting idea, you know, creative concept, uh, good for them. Hopefully it works out, and he, he gets a little bit of interest. I, I'd be curious to see the video when he gets done, what it looks like. It'll be interesting. And it will be something they can say. I was sitting in the water looking up through my goggles with my mask, with my filter, and saw the, mm-hmm. but not from underwater. Yeah. I, I can remember in elementary school we did the pinhole uh, observers. And I think the eclipse is kind of like this one here where it was quite a ways away from Michigan. So, uh I remember his kids looking at you like, well, what are we supposed to be seeing? And then Lake Michigan Shipwreck is an underwater classroom full of mystery and history. This one's out of Chicago, about 200 feet off the shoreline, in fact, covering about a quarter acres, an underwater 
pocket scientists find fascinating, and the mystery of Lake Michigan is always inviting to learn more. It's called the Morgan Shoal. is a body is a shallow body of water with a hard rock bottom and a whole bunch of stories to tell. What lies beneath the rocky outcrop uh, has scientists like Phil Willenick studying it closely for a year and a half. Willenick is senior biologist at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. Morgan Shoal is an is the compressed remains of a coral reef that formed over 425 million years ago. Willenick said, "Way back then, Chicago is actually southern." Uh, south of the equator in a shallow tropical sea covered by coral reefs. Over time, these coral reefs compressed into a super hard rock, and it is still there today. So we actually live near the equator then. Uh, there's more to study that intrigues Wilneck and his crew. It is the site of a shipwreck. The Silver Spray went down on July 15, 1914. It was on its way to pick up a UFC student to take him to Gary, Indiana to look at the steel mills but ran aground near 48th Street on Morgan Shoal. Eventually, the boiler fell to the bottom, the propeller and dive shaft, and the rest of the boat was made of wood and drifted away. No one died, but the boiler is still there over 100 years later. It's a great historical landmark. It also created an outdoor classroom for experts in all things aquatics. We have used sonar to map the bottoms, nets and traps to see what fish are out there, looked at the rocks to see what aquatic insects are living out there, drones and remotely operated vehicles and divers. We use all these different types of methods. Each tells a slightly different story. They've also used a virtual reality camera to capture a 360-degree perspective. The hope is to share it with the public so more people can learn about the lake. One of the biggest dangers we face in Great Lakes and Lake Michigan is, in general, if we just take it for granted. Experts in the Shed Aquarium say fish are drawn to silver spray wreckage, but they don't know why. One day... One day's worth of effort at Morgan Shoals equivalent to all the biologists over one year in the entire state of Illinois will next set. Do he you believe the one statement? He doesn't know why the, the fish are drawn to it? Yeah. It's like, excuse me? Ask a fisherman. Where do you find fish? <laughs> I don't uh, – did he just say that to say that? Yeah, but I mean I'd be embarrassed if I were an you know, expert at shed saying I don't know why fish congregate to a shallow water – Refreck. Duh, maybe because it's a shallow water refreck. <laughs> That's what they do. A place they can breed and have food and. A, lo- a lot of times, uh, and this is for people who don't dive, which I'm kind of surprised you, you'd be listening to the show, but <laughs> it, it really comes down to fish don't want to be eaten. As tasty as they are, and I don't know if they're aware of how tasty they are, but they do not want to be food for other fish and objects that are bigger than them. So they like to have some sort of cover. Lake Michigan in general is quite a bit sandy bottom. And anything that sticks up that you're a little fish and you can hide in from fry all on up, plankton, uh, that's a good thing. So that's why they're drawn to it. I, I just can't believe one day's worth of effort at Morgan Shoal is equivalent to all the biologists over one year in the entire state of Illinois. That's a heavy statement. Is that a trick question? How many biologists are there in the this state? I mean, it's Illinois, so it's got to be a lot. But you would think that it's a there'd be many. Uh, yeah, it it is. Yeah, it, it kind of an odd article, but still cool. I didn't realize that there was a boiler there. Is this one of those spots where it's really hard to get a permission to go and dive it? No, you that guy's snorkeling. You can see it from shore. Right, but the boiler sticks up. We we've had. If I'm okay. not, I, I'd be very surprised if if uh, Kevin has not been there already and got photos of it himself. Okay, 
I would be very surprised. He loves those shallow water ones like that, and he likes to verify they are, in fact, where they said they were, and generally they're not, so he always <laughs> corrects the GPS for people. Yeah. Well, very good. And then we have an event that's coming up here in Holland, Michigan. Michigan Shipwrecks Associates will host an evening with Frank Mays. Mays is one of only two crew members that survived the November 18, 1958 sinking of the Great Lakes freighter, the Carl D. Bradley. The Shipwreck Association's program will feature speakers May will take place 7 p.m. Monday, July 10th in Woolnick's Auditorium of Graves Hall on the Hope College campus, campus. 263 College Avenue. We'll share the story of this harrowing event and the storm that cracked the vessel in two, dragged it to the bottom of Lake Michigan. Mays and one other survivor, first mate Elmer H. Fleming, were rescued 15 hours after the Bradley sunk. They were 17 miles from the spot where the ship went down between Beaver and Gull Islands. The Bradley was a 623-foot limestone cargo ship owned by Michigan Limestone Division of U.S. Steel and operated by the Bradley Transportation Line. The ship was on its way from U.S. Steel's Gary, Indiana docks to its winter layover in Rogers City. Author shipwreck diver Valerie Van Heest will present an introductory overview following the program. May and Van Heest will sign copies of their books about the Carl D. Bradley. Tickets are available at, at uh, msraspecialevents.eventbrite.com for 8 bucks each. Remaining tickets will be available at the door for $10. Seating is limited to the first 150 that register. Have you heard him talk? I think he's been to a few of the dive shows before. Yeah, he's been to the ones especially there in Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. And I do believe they've had this before up north by MSRA before, or one similar to it. Yeah. So I take it that this is a fundraiser and they're splitting the money between MSRA and Hopefully they're giving him a little bit for speaking. I don't know, but one would assume. And they both have books, Valerie and uh, May. So, And then Parks Canada has revealed the secret map of Franklin Shipwreck. And uh, actually, they didn't mean to. Secrecy has surrounded the discovery of the doomed ships of the Franklin Expedition since they were found, the HMS Erebus in 2014 and the terror in 2016 uh, the former prime minister Stephen Harper insisted on re- on revealing the Erebus find personally in a controlled photo op no questions were allowed since then Parks Can has given out information at tightly controlled media releases even ap- academic historians have only had limited access to the story and the tightest secret of all is locations of the wrecks themselves Parks Canada, Canada and Nunavik are worried that looters might damage a wreck and pillage artifacts inside. Both ships are in shallow water and too remote to be guarded. They're so concerned they've discussed setting up protection zone around the wrecks. Private searchers revealed last summer the wrecks of the Terror lie somewhere in Terror Bay, but the bay is more than 5 kilometers wide and close to 10 kilometers long and frozen most of the year. But anyone who has seen Pirates of Caribbean knows you can't keep a treasure map hidden for long. Parks Canada had to put the map in a proposed protection zone in public record, including tiny, precise triangle marking the location of the HMS Terror within the bay. The map is an appendix to a different document and the emails available through access to information rules. Already, at least two organizations have gotten copies of the map through special access requests. The citizen is the second. The first was a lawyer from Parks Canada won't identify. Anyone else who knows how to ask, Ken. 
freedom of information, right? Yeah, and, and Canada's got their own version of what uh, we have down here in the U.S. Uh, Parks Canada says it believes the map isn't enough to lead looters to the site. They say that they, they didn't put the mark exactly where it was. Uh, the map is released to access information, provides a general location of the wreck, but not a specific location. Access to the site of HMS Terror is not allowed this time without permit from the government of Nunavut. Ironically, the map has surfaced just as access to information request shows the government is worried about secrecy. An email uh, that should have had to mention the Terror Bay as a general area of the wreck because it's too specific. And I agree with them. I don't think that they should have listed what bay it was in. Because how did tough- you see the Go Did ahead. you see the link I sent you? Yeah, I saw that you sent me one. Let me take a peek at it. <laughs> well, if you look at some of the stuff they sent there, including the side scan shot, and then they show you it in proximity to the wreck of the Airbus E R E B U S, with a little bit of coordination about some of that, you could probably relocate it using some of the information they provided if you had a decent side scan. Well, I'm, I'm just looking at the photos. Those are going to show up very uniquely on a side scan. Plus, I am picturing that in that bay up there, there should not be a ton of shipwrecks. Well, I am looking at, have you seen the image of the deck? That image of the deck is amazing. Go down, if you've got that article, scan down a little bit and look at the deck. The one where it's got the, uh, I can't remember what you call those. An image from the deck of the wreck is listed. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful. I have never, even on working restored shipwrecks, you rarely see one that looks that nice. Belaying pins, I think that's what those oh, were. The, yeah. Beautiful. I mean, that's, that is awesome. You, now, we, we talked about raising wrecks before. If you were going to raise a wreck, this would be the one. I mean, I don't know what kind of condition it's in, if it's all broken apart, but just looking at those, like you said, those belaying pins, those are beautiful. Right. Well, you saw the side scan, the uh, tutorial, the really good one. It's not loading yet. Oh, okay. oh there it is. It, it's, yeah, it's not oh. going to float. <laughs> the front end is smashed really good. Well, I'm not saying float. But, I'm just saying you, you pick it up. I mean, because, I mean, it just looks beautiful. But that's yeah. in fairly because it, it from if I remember the story correctly, it, it was stuck in the ice for years and finally got crushed enough to where it sank. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred and twenty nine men in the Franklin expedition died. The worst disaster hit the British Royal Navy in its long history of polar exploration. Search parties continue to look for the ships for 11 years after they disappeared, but found no trace. And the fate of the missing men remained an enigma. That tantalized generations. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I mean, for one thing, you gotta look for it, but once they narrow it down like that, if you were so motivated, you could, you could find it. Again, just takes money. Right. And you, you think that, uh, somebody, if you're up that way, they're not gonna be asking questions about why you wanna be there. I'm not picturing that this is a heavily traveled area, except for maybe some, locals and i don't think there's a whole lot of locals at that point yeah and if it's iced over as much as it normally is your window of opportunity is is limited yeah it's going to be expensive to get up there and unless you what you taking artifacts off i'm guessing is what what they're worried about well from the pictures there's a lot of artifacts to be looked at oh yeah i mean you're talking about Wine bottles, tables, and empty shelving. 
they found a desk with open drawers with something in the back of the corner of the drawer. Well, what I think they should do is uh, how about they do this? $2,000 a person, and they limit it to maybe 20 or 30 people. You cut, And you have to arrange, you pay for your own transportation up there. But they let you do an escorted dive on the wreck, and they use that to help fund conservation and protection. Yeah, it would be simpler, too, though, if they use a, a submersible, just like they're doing the Titanic. Yeah. That way they can do it in relative comfort, and you can get the people who's got the big bucks. Yeah. They can say, hey, I went down and looked at this, and nobody else can see it yet. Yeah. That's that's one way to raise some funds. Yeah. I mean, if... And you'd be there frequent enough to keep trespassers away. And you've got the ice is going to protect you the rest of the year. Yeah. This next article is from the Royal Gazette. An island leads the way in 3D shipwreck models. Bermuda is at the forefront of a ground-making, groundbreaking project to create 3D digital models of underwater shipwrecks with an unprecedented level of detail. Many of the island's historic shipwrecks will now be immortalized in digital form, allowing visitors to swim virtually around them thanks to a partnership between the University of California, San Diego, Bermuda's Ministry of Environment, and Natural Resources, and Look Bermuda. Bermuda 100 Challenges pushes the frontiers of engineering, and the first four of the 103 scan wrecks of Montana, the Blanche King, Manila, and Mary Celeste can be viewed at uh, www.bermuda100.com. Visitors to America's Cup Village will already have seen a portion of the project in the Education Zone, where Look Bermuda founder and filmmaker Jean-Pierre Roja was giving demonstrations on two 3D digital displays. The films allow viewers around the world an internet connection to virtually dive below Bermuda's ocean, swim along the shipwrecks. Uh, so what they're hoping to do is get all these uh, wrecks scanned. Uh, it looks there like must be more than there. There must be more, more than one boat called Mary Celeste. Oh, I think that that was a f- common name because Mary. The, wasn't there one around Haiti that went down? Well, I was looking at the one that was discovered adrift and deserted in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. In 1872, that's what I remember, and then I had to look that up real quick to make sure it's not the same one. Yeah, I, a lot of names seem to get used over and over and over. Um, so, a, a cool project. Uh, I've I've thought about doing the same thing here in the Great Lakes. Uh, part of it's just getting the, the money and the time. Well, you know, it'd be interesting to see a 3D like that of the Muskegon, and they have tried that. You know, you've seen a couple of those photos from 3D uh, two years ago that Illinois put out of some of their wrecks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought we had talked about that at one yeah. time. Yeah, they, they, and, they did a nice job of those too. Right. That sort of reminds me of this, and those wrecks have more structure than what I'm looking at here, though. Yeah, this Mary Celeste, uh, they show an image in the, the article, and it's uh, pretty well chewed up. To and, put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> it actually looks more like a toy you'd have in the bottom of your aquarium than a, a big shipwreck. Uh, are we almost through these already? I think we are. Well, you know, for time-wise, we're just about right. If we're doing an hour show, we are almost 45 minutes on the news and current events. Before we get down to the gap time. Yeah. So uh, we have a potentially cool scuba gear, and this feels a lot like a press release, so take it with a little bit of grain of salt. Royal Caribbean built waterproof Snapchat spectacles for underwater exploring, and we tried them out. Adweek took a pair to the pool. With the expectation of professional deep-sea divers and filmmakers, 
Well, with the with the exception of professional deep sea divers and filmmakers, underwater scenery is largely main unexplored territory on social media. But that would change an unusual invention from Royal Caribbean, which plans to strap waterproof cameras on cruise goers' faces, help them get. Enviable vacation pics. This week, the company's debuting its scuba na- mask with built-in Snapchat, Snapchat spectacles, which could soon enable everyday divers to swim and shoot videos and photograph marine life in places like Belize and Mexico. The Seeker's uh, goggles were built by Sexton, an Oregon-based firm that specializes in custom underwater housing. The concept was developed by a Boston ad agency. Okay, I'm, I'm not reading anymore. Uh I'm trying to figure out what's new about this. Well, in my ignorance and my age, I don't know what Snapchat really <laughs> is. But if you're underwater, and unless you've got a telescopic antenna to the surface with a broadcast, uh, I don't see how you're going to see it instantaneous that I couldn't do it with my GoPro, come right. up and Wi-Fi it to the boat, and then put it out. So, well, And that's, that's the thing. It's is people who've been paying attention to this for any amount of time. You can... Uh, but GoPros, uh, there are there are dive masks for years that have had cameras built right into them. Uh, a lot of different ways you can do it. Now, these uh, Snapchat is a service a little bit like, I mean, you, you've got Facebook, you've got Instagram. Uh, Snapchat was popular with the kiddies because they said that they didn't keep. So if you did a photo and you did some text, it was supposed to be gone within minutes and not recorded since then it's recorded plus you know the nsa has a copy of everything anyway Uh, but that was the premise and snap uh, which has become a rather valued social media company has come up with these goggles and so what somebody just did is they took one thing mashed it into scuba diving goggles and they they somehow think it's unique and they're talking about patenting it which is like you know if you patent this that's stupid um they should not be allowed to patent things that are obvious and have been done before. Uh, you know that comment you made about NSA has everything you had anyway? Yeah. You know, they can help balance the budget by selling us and let us get back some of the old data we had you know, right. at a cost. You know, if they've got my hard drive backed up. I wouldn't need all my extra terabyte items I fill up and put off to the side. Right. No. You know, so they're li- they're probably listening to us. So, think of the the money you guys can make by giving people back their hard drives that they've <laughs> lost through fumbling and whatever, and you can help subsidize your income, get you a bigger computer. Yeah, they as exactly. if you need one. Yeah, certainly. An- another uh, economic advice from the program. So we should be charging all these brilliant nuggets of wisdom. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. Once again, thank everybody who's, who's stuck with us in the chat room. We still have Eric's hanging out there, Mullinex guest four. Uh, some of our phone line listeners have since dropped off, probably got to wherever they were going. So we are to that time of the show where we talk about some scuba diving. Uh, Mac, have you been able to get under the water at all in this last week? Well, actually, I did. Um, I got out with Big John. Uh, we went out and... Uh, I think we have officially declared the river to be available for rummaging and scrounging. Uh, it is definitely fast right now. Uh, visibility is limited. And you have a lot of trees and debris that are creating lots and lots of snags out there. So if you're out there near the shoreline and you start bumping into stuff you can't see. 
and you get fouled up, just take your time. Don't get excited and uh, sort of back your way out of it because there's a lot of tree limbs. I mean, it'll, it'll poke you and you're not even realizing it until you can't move and you're under, okay, what, what did I stick myself into? So just be careful out there. I did post a picture that if you do your fanning, the current will take it away. You can probably have a good two feet of visibility. And considering we were diving, started at 6.30 in the evening, the light penetration wasn't very good and we had overcast. So a high noon day, you probably have maybe three or four feet. Lots of fish, lots of crayfish. Excellent. So, And I know that, um, well, of course, Kevin's been out there diving hither and yon, and I'm sure he'll give us a good update when he comes back next week. Uh, I'm trying to thank Karen Mann. Uh, she's been doing the last Thursday, Thursday dive, and they've been doing it down at uh, Pawpaw off Forest Beach, and she's upholding the tradition very well by being able to find golf balls whenever she's out there. Excellent. Yeah, I saw that. So she's been keeping the dream alive, making them official dives. And right. She's been also like uh, Richard Curtis, who is doing the Thursday night dives with SAS Group. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to make some of those also, since they're both a little closer to the Kalamazoo area. Yeah. So we do have our muddies out there, and uh, we do have the two special muddies getting ready to go to Washington to commercial dive school. Mm-hmm. And I am so envious. I just love to go just to, to listen to it, play around. We, we need to come up with some sort of challenge that they keep us informed. Like maybe they they need to do a daily blog and summary. That or uh, we can give them a buzz when they're up there and start getting an update on what they're doing. Yeah, maybe, maybe that we could have them call on the show. We could do a weekly update. How how many weeks is Diver School? I'm I'm not sure which one they have signed up for. I know a lot of them give you your basic and then they start adding – if you're going to do uh, sat diving, that's extra. If you're going to start doing UT, PT, welding, there's so many different extra items you can do that you can wind up being there for a little bit. Yeah. Now, were they welders beforehand? No. No, okay. Yeah, I've, I've heard the story. I think maybe you even said it. It was easier to teach a diver to uh, a welder to dive than a diver to weld. Generally, that is 100% correct. And again, critical ones like if you're doing stainless steel and critical items, you make an irritate a chamber over it because you want a good weld. You know, you put right. gas in there, so you're you're in a dry habitat, but you're still under pressure. You're just in a bubble of air, like the telephone booth at Lake 16. Yeah, but you do want to get a better weld than you'd get if it's wet. Oh yeah, wet wet uh, is a, is a heck of a challenge for welding. No, yeah, me cutting and burning is my forte. Meaning not finesse, just get in there and do it. Uh-huh. And then uh, in the chat room, Eric said that uh, him and Kevin went to Indian Lake last Friday. Uh, they hooked a, a raft up to one of the residents' chain with new chains. Said Viz mm-hmm. was past 30 feet but cold. And then Eric in the chat room also said he dove Gloucester, Massachusetts on Monday with two boys. Now that that place has got some history. That would just be nice to, to say you've dove there. Yeah. I, I'm envious. They also have a high high tide there, don't they? Yes, I as I remember. Do. Yeah, and I was just curious that they, they entertained that or how how that was. I mean, you don't normally dive the dock area when that's coming in and out, but I wonder how that is effective when you're offshore a little bit. Mm-hmm. But very cool. So, see that one of the benefits come in the chat room is you can uh, get the chat. Like like we said before, the chat room sometimes is more interesting than the program. Yeah. Well, I, I did miss a club meeting last 
last week because I was doing a presentation at the uh, North Berrien Historical Society. I did a presentation there on uh, what lies beneath the treasures mm-hmm. of Paw Lake, and that was well received. Good. So I got an invite to more places for it, so it's Good. fun. So we got any plans uh, for diving scheduled this weekend? We're coming up on the 4th of July, which mentally is the midpoint of summer. Well, I saw some postings. I think Bob and them were out there saying, okay, who's available, who's doing what? Uh, I would like to get a dive in somewhere. More than likely, it'll be back to Paw Paw, and I'll probably go out to the uh, Sherwood Bay mm-hmm. or Outlet Bay and do a dive out there. But the weeds are horrendous, and I just want to get some video. Uh, I got asked to do a presentation there for the uh, Lake Foundation to show what sediment really looks like from the diver perspective and what it's like going through some of those weeds to give them a feel for what's going on. Well, very cool. And uh, let's see. So, I, I will... as, as, a, as a side note, uh-huh. did you see that uh, picture I did post that if you're diving any of the lakes, especially Paw Paw, uh, make sure you're looking for the red claw yeah, I crayfish. I I briefly saw and, that. So you're you're looking specifically for a crayfish called the red claw. Crayfish. Yes, and the claw would be yeah because it's bumpy. Uh, the major claw will be red and bumpy, and that is an invasive species. It takes over from what we already have, and then the uh, second item, and I I got the report back. They were not even thinking about zebra slash quagga mussels in the in Pawpaw Lake, they hadn't had any reports of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I posted a couple of pictures of some clams that are going the same way as the ones up in uh, Lake Huron did. The mussels are getting on them, closing the jaw, so the mantle can't either get back out or get back in, and they're going to die. Oh. And the health of the lake, you know, is usually indicative by how good is the, you know, the crayfish, what are the clams like, what are the snails like, and uh, this is not a good sign for them. No. So anybody who's listening who's diving, keep an eye for those and take pictures. If nothing else, take a baggie with you and take a sample. And if you don't know what to do with it, send it to me and I'll send it to somebody who really wants to know. Well, I like the citizen scientist approach. and There's a lot more of us diving than there are these scientists and researchers at the universities. Well, they used to, they used to um, years ago, we would do that for U of M and a few other places who were interested. As a, you know, that we'd have the forms. You'd fill out the form of who, what, when, and where, if possible, pictures and samples. You send that in, and they digest the information and say thank you very much. Because a lot of times they don't have a clue until somebody shows them something and says, "Oh my God, we didn't know this." So if you're out there and it looks unusual, it's different. Never hurts to let your local DNR and or your university know about this. Well, I think some of the tough things is going to be how many of our local lakes and ponds have ever been officially surveyed. I do know that there are some, and, and the reason I know this is a project that I'd worked on, there are maps for species of fish. So there are maps so that because they've done surveys that way, trying to find out what the population is. But how many people have gotten in with scuba gear and cameras and slides and really documented some of these lakes? I'm Generally, that that happens recently now by the uh, people trying to save their lake because there's something wrong with it. Uh, Indian Lake, 
Mm-hmm. Same way, pawpaw lake. Now that the people live around it and they want to get rid of the algae, they want to get rid of the, the, the algae blooms, the weeds, they have an interest because it's money. Right. But how about Singer Lake or Hess Lake or uh, Clear Lake? You know, any of these uh, lakes, is there barren? Has there when been- you fly over them, it's very apparent that we have screwed up the water table in this bad because you can see they're all shrinking. You go over Barren Lake, for example, and that's got uh, artificial, not artificial, it's got artesian wells and stuff that fill it. Pawpaw Lake, for example, is a drainage lake. It is from the wetlands feeding into it, and one of its biggest feeds is the Darby Drain, which is a 16-mile canal from Bangor down that is just filling it full of sediment, phosphorus, nitrogen, and everything all the fields are draining into. That's coming right into Pawpaw Lake. Mm. And that's, that's the way a lot of the lakes are. But you, you, you go up and look around, and you can see how they're visibly shrinking because of the water table as it's going down. Which, to me, is kind of surprising in the Great Lakes because we always assume we have plenty of water. And that's what they say about assume. Yeah. Yeah, because you, we just, you, you keep drawing it from the ground if you don't have rain or something that's pulling it back in at that same rate. Well, there's a lot to say for not paving over the world and making parking lots. Yeah. Well, do you have a safety tip of the day? Well, actually, I have one. Uh, it's called optimizing your dive gear, and it's pretty simple. I, I just said, from my river diving experience, I've learned the importance for streamlining and lightening or tightening up my gear, my dive gear. For scuba diving safety, avoid dangling hoses straps, any other item might entangle you in the weeds, a wreck, submerged tree limb, or just catch into the seat of the dive boat as you're making your exit. So when you go back over, well, your fin strap was caught on something, so now you're underwater, but your leg's in the boat. And if you forgot to have a little air in your BC, your regulator in your mouth, that's going to be very embarrassing. So eliminate the the dangerous dangles, and you'll be a safer, better, and more accomplished scuba, scuba diver. I certainly so agree. look before you look before you leap. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you there. Uh, it's the one of the things that at least I was taught in my open water class, and you know, mine's been relatively recent, even though now I have to say it's been about ten years. But uh, is this that the uh, they always said have a streamline, you know, have have things where they're not dragging at the bottom. And when you see a lot of photos online and in magazines you see people with just stuff dangling anywhere they got their you know they're 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 swimming horizontally and their gauge is just flapping down you know three feet below them uh that's going to get caught on stuff you know if you're in a reef that's going to get caught in the reef if you're in the boat going down or up uh you know you get caught on the ladder uh you know just keep stuff tucked away and attached properly and things will go much better yeah and the other aspect especially in the river, anything you've got on you, don't have it tied down that you can't get rid of it, meaning it should have a breakaway. Right. Because if you're using parachute cord to put in your reef hook around your wrist and that gets snagged on something you cannot undo, you are royally screwed if you don't have a knife or two that you can cut that. Because you're not going to chew through or break parachute cord. No. And the same thing, another hazard you're out there in the river grubbing is your goodie bag. Depending on how you have that suspended on your on your system or dangling behind you, 
that little sucker is going to snag on something, sure as heck. Mine snags every time. Yeah, so just don't make sure that when it gets snagged, you can't break off from it. Make sure if you're wearing gloves and it's cold, if you can't unhook the snap, the buckle or whatever, you shouldn't be having that snap or buckle. And that's something that we have to worry about when we're in 5mm, 7mm gear is just how what's your dexterity like and and moving stuff on or off. And you should be able to attach and detach just about everything you've got with those gloves on. Yeah, but it's little little tricks like that you're going to learn. It's like when you're in the fast river and you've got the inner tube with the cart, you know, the uh, milk carton in it. That's a wonderful thing, but the drag on that and fast current will tire you out. Plus, it may take you where you don't want to go. It's happened to me more than once. And we've talked about it on the episodes more than a couple oh, times. Yeah. And the more you put bottles in it and it starts going down in the water, the more mass is there to be drag. I consider myself an underwater hoarder. I, I've done the leapfrog where I know I'm about 100 yards down from the where I need to get back up to. And I've got that bag just so full. And so, like, you, you lift it three feet ahead of you, and then you pull up to it, then you do you push it ahead of you again, and you just keep doing that? Well, that's how I cross on the bottom because everybody knows that the current's faster at the top. So going to the bottom, it's easier to swim on the bottom across than it is midstream or on top. And using that, I got my heavily weighted goodie bag sideways, creep across. It takes me a while but it's safer than trying to do it some other way. And if you get exhausted, you get rid of the stuff before you get exhausted. You can always come back and get it later. In the uh, chat room, Eric kind of back on us talking about the lakes drying up. He said the lakes in his area are the highest they have been in years. And he says it's been the trend for the last five years. And where is this? Eric, wh- where are you out of? We'll, we'll come back to him when he – there's probably a little okay, bit of I lag know, with the, the chat the, room. I know Lake Michigan is up. Kalamazoo and area. Look, well, the, any, well, I don't know about Kalamazoo. I do know that <clears throat> Excuse me, the runoff areas are pretty high. And I know our St. Joe River that feeds back all the way down to Berrien is higher. And part of that is because Lake Michigan is higher and it's feeding it back, basically back feeding. Yeah. So if you look at the docking and the piers around the Great Lakes, there the water level is high. Yeah. But if you look at the inland lakes, and I'll use Barren Lake, if they didn't pump extra water from away from the lake into the lake, it would definitely be dry. Yeah. I did notice I was at my mother-in-law's, which is on the St. Joe River. It feels like the water level's high, like the like the uh, dam is uh, keeping the water level high, higher than the St. Joe River as well. It, it's still high right now. It's not as high as it has been. But this is this time of year, it should be lower than it is now. I did see my first uh, corn irrigation going on today on my way home, which is actually pretty good. Uh, it, it's fortunate we haven't had to have anybody doing any irrigation until the end of June. So I don't know if they were just testing their rig out to making sure it would work when they needed it or if they thought they were going to need some because we actually had some little bit of rain last night. Yeah, we did. Uh I, I wish I knew more about the uh, rivers and now is he talking about the rivers are higher or the the actual lakes are higher, like Gull Lake or something like this? Uh, in the chat, he's saying the lakes in our area are their highest they've been in years. So he's saying lakes, lakes again, yeah. Hmm. 
I wonder if there's a is it there, we'll we'll do some research for next week, but I, I wonder if there's a, a program that they've got that talks about. You know, it seems like the state would have something where they're monitoring individual lake levels. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. I know the river. There's uh, automated reports that are happening constantly because they they have a flood flood stage warning system, so they're monitoring it that way. And I would assume that part of that warning system, you'd want to monitor the lakes that are being fed by or feeding too. Uh, so that should play into it. Well, I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the year on the air one more year. If you like hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors, you'll love WRVO Radio. If you want to learn more how to listen, go to our website, www.scubobsess.com. Scroll down to the bottom, and we'll have links that take you there. Uh, also, it's been a while since we've been on the website and done anything with the fan maps. Uh, so if you haven't put your pin in the fan map, go onto our website, hunt for that. Uh, put a pin in, and you'll be able to see where all the other divers are are diving as well. Uh, let's see. Do we have anything else that we've missed? Things have just gone too smooth. I'm just, uh, I, I, I'm not comfortable when things are going well. You know, it was that you're looking for disasters, I guess. Well, I'm enjoying the, the serenity of this movement here. It's just flowing so well. <laughs> well, you have anything you want to plug before we get to that time of the show? No, but if, if people are out there diving or not diving and they're divers, it's like, I don't know what the blazes you're waiting for. Cause it ain't getting any better than this. Oh, I, I think you're speaking to me because I've, I have, the last time I dove, I think was the the uh, in Niles in the river for the ecological dive. Whoa, you yeah. are way behind. Yeah, it's like my dry my my gear. I'm afraid I'm going to have to sew it together and then dip it in something because it will be completely dried out. Yeah, I, it, it, this is like a record. This is a record. Well, that's got to be like nine months now that I have not been able to get in. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't, I, the next two weekends are shot and the week is shot. So I am, you know, maybe I, I don't know. I'm going to have to get recertified, <laughs> make sure my gear works. Well, we're going to watch you very closely. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other thing is that, uh, being a, a, a not super fit guy, you know, if I'm diving at least every other week, Health-wise, you're like, well, I made it last week. I'll probably make it this week. But when you go nine months and you don't dive, you're kind of thinking, well, you know, what if you got some aneurysm or something that you just haven't looked at or you got a blood clot or something? We, we really don't want to go there, maybe. I'm, I'm <laughs> looking at me and I'm looking at you. There's a little <laughs> difference in the age there, buddy. I think, you're, I think you're in better shape than I am. At least you're getting in the water. Yeah, well, I hope to get in a little more. You know, it's been an unusual year for me also. So we'd like some feedback. Uh, let us know how the show's doing, what you like, what you don't like. Maybe I'll do some surveys. That sounds like we had that question earlier. What was the one that we were asking that we wanted to know about? Well, the big survey that I still have not got a definitive response on from is from the one they did in Australia. And that's been, what, five years now? Wow. And that was the one that I thought the questions were phrased in such a manner that uh, was trying to drive governmental uh, action and control over what a diver can and cannot do and how they should regulate that. Right. And uh, I know that part of it was that the individual doing it changed uh, universities, which put a hold on part of it. But uh, 
I'd still like to see the final results and tabulation of the, the items. Yeah, maybe we'll have to look that one up, see if they can get some of that out there. Well, I'm sure Kevin would be saying uh, make sure you support your local dive shops because you're not going to be able to get air fills online and also talking about hot librarians. Now, I wasn't going to say that part. I was just going to say <laughs> the dedicated individuals who help us out a lot, Yeah, meaning the librarians, and they do. Yes. Yeah, and and they like that. The, believe me, that's what they're there for. I think, if, if, imagine if you were in your job and people didn't appreciate you or didn't use what you do. And uh, so that's what the librarians are there for. And I'm sure that they've got interest in local history and would love nothing more than having you come in and uh, ask them some questions or maybe uh, challenge them with a task that they may be willing to do. Yeah, a lot of the places, if you're doing rec research, uh, you've got to have certain trainings of how to handle certain documents, white glove treatment. Yes. And when you can go and get that cert and then you go and you're doing research and somebody says, well, this is delicate papers, blah, blah, and you can, well, here is my cert that shows I've done this before, it goes a long way to getting their cooperation also. Yes. And a lot of times it's all in how you ask. You ask a question one way and you get one set of answers. You ask it another way and you might get a whole different set. I, I know we were researching the Chikora, and I think it was Bowling Green University we were down to, which has a really nice facility. And uh, one of the items they'll teach you is give, get you a certification of how to handle rare documents or old documents. So we went to Chicago, and uh, we were doing some research. And to be able to to actually handle the logbooks from the life-saving stations here from St. Joe and South Haven and read their articles on beach search, for the Chikora the morning after, that's freaking awesome when you figure and you look at the printing and the guy's name, it's like, this guy did this, and you've walked that same stretch. It's awesome. Well, and then some of these is we're getting to that point where some of these people, their their grandchildren aren't alive anymore. I mean, there's been so many generations that have gone from some of the documents that you're looking at researching to where they are now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that no matter how we talk about the uh, the newspapers are so biased in one way or the other and how terrible people are nowadays, just doing research on, on something 100 years ago, looking at the carrier from Coloma, mm-hmm. the articles in the paper could have been written today on car accidents, somebody dying, somebody shot somebody, somebody robbed somebody. It's and articles and editorials on how people are not nice to each other anymore. It is it, really an eye-opening that we don't change very much. No. Our news reporting isn't any better. Well, and that's one thing that I always have to remind myself is when, when I was stupid and young and something happened, it seemed like that was fine. But when you get older, you really don't want to see somebody being as stupid as, and as young as you were. And, uh, as I get as I as I get a little older, I, I'm waiting for this wiser part to come into my life <laughs> because I still find myself doing stupid things. I, I'm looking for the graceful part, and I'm finding that that is going exactly in the opposite direction. Yeah, we could get philosophic in here, but then we'd lose <laughs> a lot of listeners. <laughs> well, Eric, I just uh, pasted to you, Mac, uh, a link, and he's he found an article on. 
technological advances in lake mapping. So that's something that we can take a look at. And, uh, wow, looks pretty cool. Uh, Michigan. You said you sent me the link because I can't find mine again. <laughs> that lovely it's sky. Gone. Oh, there it is. I got it. Okay. I just clicked on it. Yeah. And uh, it looks like a long read, so we won't cover it this week. But uh, no, but I'm saving it as I as I do. Yeah, you'll you'll certainly like it. It's a nice one. So thanks, Eric, for sharing that lake mapping with us. And I do believe we are getting to that time of the show. Are you ready? Ever ready. Okay. And I think this one we're going to break into two parts. I've got a. Uh, initial warm-up one, and then we'll do the other one. So here we go. Hanging out in the bar one night, a drunk guy stumbles over to me and my friends. He says, uh, why why do sharks swim in salt water? I, I don't know, I say. Because pepper would make them sneeze. Okay, and this is in preparation for the good one, huh? Well, I, I didn't say it was good. I just said it was a warm-up. Uh, when I was younger, I went to Florida with my mom to go to Universal Studios. We took a shuttle from the airport to the hotel and sat near the front. The driver was giving us a rundown of the best restaurants and attractions near Universal Studios. At one point, we passed a huge mini golf place. The driver told us all about it and ended by saying, and they even have a huge crocodile you can feed. I said to my mom, I bet that place costs an arm and a leg. At least it's cute. <laughs> but doesn't it flow better after giving the really bad one than the almost bad one? Well, I didn't say the last one was really bad. I mean, we've had some bad ones. <laughs> well, here, here, here's one. Uh, maybe, maybe this will make you feel better. What's the difference between a bad golfer and a bad skydiver? Go ahead and tell me. One goes whack, damn. The other goes, damn whack. A lot of truth to that. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you had, the, you had the perspective to appreciate it. So until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe and be kind to the local librarians. Well, heck, you're going to be able to get this done before you go to bed at 12.